I'm afraid I've had, throughout my life, I've had a very bad habit of talking too long. How my audiences remained listening for the length of time that I spoke, I often wonder now. On one occasion, I gave, here in Dublin, I gave a talk on the Holy Land. I'd been to the Holy Land, and I thought that these people whom I was speaking would like to listen to it. An old man's home. And one of the old men was coming on to 10 o'clock at night, and I think he wanted to get free in any case. But he was asked, he had been asked to propose a vote of thanks to me. So he, he began the vote of thanks in this way. We have had a most exhaustive, and indeed, if I might add, a most exhausting lecture. And indeed, the very first time that I heard that voice face to face, so to speak, he talked for some two hours, Eamon de Valera did, President de Valera then, Two hours with no recordings, and I lived in the Valley of the Damned broadcasters for that few hours. I had insinuated myself into a private visit of Dev's down to Brewery, and I was in the home of Monikin Shoei in Tankerstown when he arrived with his entourage late in the afternoon. I said, Mr President, I would like to do a series about your boyhood. And he was firm but pleasantly uh, reluctant. And there was a certain softening, I thought. But then when I rushed for tape recorder, he said, no, this cannot be recorded. And he talked, as I say, he talked on and on, talked about childhood, brewery and about the neighbours. Finally, Maureen Keller thought of a compromise and said, why wouldn't you record some of the president's old school friends? And uh, I could see the president felt that perhaps there was a way out from this young man who would not let go. So I said, certainly we'll do that. I got the list of names and within a week I was back onto the Oris in all my innocence on the phone and saying, Reluctantly, I think he said, well, we'd better make it next Tuesday. So Paddy O'Donovan and myself, mobile unit and all, gilded our loins, wore our best suits and headed for the Oris on a frosty morning in the month of November 1965. We met him at the door and he was quiet, he was monosyllabic and I think I'd almost say he was as nervous as we were ourselves. We came into this big room and there was the big table and I was sat at one corner and Dev sat behind and this large, what they call, I think a ball and biscuit microphone sat on the table in front of him and it was monosyllabic for a long time. And then after two hours or so he said, well, the next time you come I'll be much better. But that was two hours after his beginning his beginnings, I suppose, of dipping deep down into the deep well of de Valera memory. A memory, I suppose, which, like all our memories, is not always certain, especially if you're spanning something like 80 years, and going back, indeed, to 1885, to your very first night in Ireland. I don't remember it, of course, but my first view of that neighbourhood must have been from the hill of Knockmore. Uh, my first night, curiously enough, uh, was, I think... Uh, the last that anybody stepped in what we call the old house. The old house was a thatched house. Uh, the walls were of mud or clay, and they were fairly substantial too. I remember using a pickaxe in later years and a crowbar to try and, and break, it, break them up, and they'd be about uh, three feet at the, at the base. 
They were very substantial. But uh, my first night in here was in that old house, and uh, I wakened up in the morning, and nobody, there was nobody about. And I suppose I was frightened, and I shouted and screamed. <laughs> At any rate, my aunt would be, I suppose, about 15 years of age or so, the time she came in to to soothe me and I uh, I asked her where my uncle was where Uncle Ed was and she told me he was up at the new house so that uh, I was wondering what the, I remember wondering what the new house could be so they, they apparently it was a, a cottage uh, they had been just moving, moving from the old house, the old thatched house, to a labourer's cottage. It was one of the first cottages built in, in Ireland. Uh, I think it was about the second in the Kilmallock Union and to be about the fourth in Ireland as a whole. I think there were... I was told, when I was young, I was told that there were a couple of houses built in Louth, I think it was, before these were built. However, the family were moving just at the time and uh, uh, the men probably had been sleeping that the night that I was sleeping in the old house. They had been sleeping in the new house, in the cottage. My grandmother and Nan probably slept in the, in the old house with me. But uh, I remember it well. And I'm all, I was always interested in the fact that my first night in Ireland was the last night that anybody slept in the old house. Memories now flowed fast, free and warm, and inevitably, of course, there was Brewery. When my gr- grandmother took me to Brewery to see the uh, Bicot meeting, I was in petticoats, I remember well, and uh, I had long hair. My grandmother was rather um, proud, if I may put it like that, she was rather proud of my, long, of my hair, it was of a golden colour, I believe, and she wanted me to keep on wearing it. My uncle, on the other hand, had more regard for my feelings in the matter uh, with other boys, and he wanted to cut it off. So he, on one occasion, he did cut it off. I cut it off, and my grandmother was very, very angry. I remember before it was cut off that I must have been rather fat at the time, and we had a little uh, straw Irish terrier uh, named Jess, and she had the habit of putting her paws uh, up to my breast and throwing me over. And when she had me down, then she catched me by the hair and pulled, tried to pull me along. I seemed to enjoy it, but my uncle didn't like the long hair at all, and he was determined that he was going to put an end to it. And if you enter Aulis de Valera nowadays in Brewery, which is the museum, you can see a lock of that same golden hair of young Eddie de Valera in that schoolroom where he first learned his very, very first lessons. Oh, I remember the schoolroom very well. Uh, it unfortunately has been divided since. It was a fine room as it was. And uh, there would be about 60, I'd say about 60 pupils. One half would be as a rule, standing up, and the other half would be sitting down the desks. Those who in the desks would be writing, practicing writing, or doing some arithmetic exercises, 
or something of that sort, perhaps learning grammar or something. And those who would be uh, standing were being questioned by the teachers and being taught directly by the teachers. I remember well when the weather was in the winter time on one occasion anyhow, we had each to bring a shilling to buy coal so that uh, because uh, the room was very, very cold. And uh, that time I think a shilling would buy about a hundred weight of coal. So that if one half the school brought it, it would bring us through the winter. Some time ago you mentioned your geography game. Oh, yes. Uh, that was a game we had where those of us who we got in early in the morning before the master came. He had to travel, this was the time probably when he had to travel from Kilakala. And we'd, uh, if we were in in the morning, half an hour, a quarter of an hour before the master came, we'd uh, stand round in front of a map of the world and try to puzzle each other by asking such strange names. Can you, where's Kamaskatka? Point out Kamaskatka. Uh, uh, point out uh, uh, Christmas Island and so on. There were two brothers of mine in the same class with him. And I was speaking to him there some time ago and he, he mentioned them. And uh, on one occasion he jokingly told me that they had a battle around the schoolyard and that uh, my brother knocked against him, ran over him, and he happened to have a loose tip in his boot, and he cut a scar in his hand, and it had to be stitched. <laughs> so the president bears the mark of one of the O'Keefe boys. There's the mark. Sure, didn't That's last August. There was a slight slope in the schoolyard. In my time, I don't know if they have leveled it. I don't think they have. There was, a, there was a slight slope. To me, it looked big slope in my day. It went up towards Roach's Quarry. The top end of it was... The wall was joining Roach's quarry. And we used to sometimes get ghost dogs. Now, a ghost dog, if you pull it up, there's a good hefty root to it, yes. you see. Mm. So, evidently, we used to have, we used to have, uh, with the, those who went down Hallstone Way at the cross of the pump. We were in one batch against the, those who went over towards Joyce's country, that's uh, Bulgadin and, uh, not Bulgadin, but um, Tankerstown, in the Tankerstown direction. And we arranged to have a fight anyhow in the schoolyard this day when we were up to Munster. And we all armed ourselves in Roach's field, the quarry field, we armed ourselves with Gosadons. So there was a two, I was in the lower end, defending up against the, the height with the lower, lower boys. I wasn't by any means a leader, but I was one of them. And uh, we, were, uh, we were facing up, the others were facing down the hill. So there was a charge, anyhow. And in the charge, I was thrown back, and the fellow put, put his, uh, a broken tip mm. of a shoe, he put it there. Proof in presidential flesh of the Lawrence O'Keefe story. Interesting, too, how the County Limerick accent remains to the very end. Interesting, too, how my own accent of voice seems to have changed since those days in 1965. 
Dave now and again would forget, of course, that I knew precisely where he came from. I was only across the border in Charleville, so words that he had, so would I have had also. There was a word you wouldn't understand, I think, leeching and slinging. Mm. These were two words that you used to be, what if you were, uh, were, what's just the regular word for mitching? Mm. The regular word, well, we used to have leeching, why, I don't know, leeching and slinging. Mm. These were the two words that would be used if you were away from school. But he wasn't in this particular day, so the master asked me, or might be the monitor was in charge, and he asked me, would I go and bring him Dick Hull? So I had a day, it was an afternoon off for me, or a portion of time off for me, so I suppose like most kids, I was delighted to get away from the books and went off to bring him Dick. So I went in to call Foxy Pat's, he was the son of Foxy Pat's, I went to Foxy Pat's house and I asked, was, was Dick about? And um, I met, the first man I met was this man from, uh, I met him afterwards, next time I met him was, I mean, when I met him later in life, he was receiving me at, at Nina on my way down to Clare for the Clare election. But we used to call him, he, was, he used to sell tea. They had a, he had a trap, uh, I think it was, Foxy Pat's business, anyhow. He had tea, used to take around tea and sell it to the various people, you see. So he, used to, he had a very good voice and he used to sing. And one of the first songs that first I met had was um, Break the Bank, do you see, Monte Carlo. So they listened to Monte Carlo because he used to sing this song, maybe driving along, maybe singing Monte Carlo. So they called him Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo met me when I was in and said, who do you want? I said, I want Dick. Well, I think he's in here at the barn, said, yeah, something. So I got me into the barn, and he locked me in, <laughs> into the barn. I have an idea that I got out a window, but I'm not sure of that, that I climbed up to a window and got out, but I'm not sure of that. But uh, that was my first imprisonment. He was always, he was always boast, he was my first jailer. Dev seemed to remember everything, even his first photograph. Oh, I remember it well. Uh, I think it was when my aunt was about to go to America. And uh, they were anxious, probably, to send uh, my photograph to my mother. So I had a grand journey to Limerick by train. It was my first journey on the train. And, uh, of course, I was being dolled up before I started out. And... One of the tubs was the boots. The boots apparently didn't pass muster, and uh, a solution was found. They found that my aunt's boots, which were button boots, would fit me. At least I thought they'd fit me. I didn't think so, because I, I didn't like the idea at all. I preferred the old boots. However, uh, they put on the button boots, of my aunt, and I was taken. I was taken to O'Shea's of Limerick, and I remember seeing the man behind the the, the curtain behind the, the cover that he put over his head when he was taking the photograph, and he was trying to attract my attention so that I'd look straight at him. But um, the, I have a copy of the photograph still. Well, I remember him coming home from college when I was about four years of age. 
He was very, very tall, wearing black clothes and with big brown eyes. Was he a quiet chap? Very quiet, very good and very gentle and very helpful in the house. And very nice to us children, to and my brother and myself. Did you tell me a while ago that he taught you to play football? Well, I suppose we were eight or nine. He brought a football to my brother and he took the two of us into the field and he showed us how to play it. And of course, he gave it a big kick across the field and then another one up into the air and I thought it would never again come down. So then, of course, our attempts at football was very, very, were very, very feeble. Dev's first cousin, Mrs Henry Maher, in the old homestead in Knockmore. From the field of Knockmore to the field of politics in those days in Brewery was no journey at all. As far as my political recollections are concerned, uh, my uncle used to read the paper for my grandmother and I was sleeping in the room in the loft mm-hmm. upstairs and I could hear whatever went on in the kitchen. So uh, my uncle used to read from papers the news and I listened in as a rule if I were awake. So I remember my first recollection, I think, was the shooting at Mitchellstown and the horror was expressed by my uncle, my grandmother, you know, at, the, at this terrible business. And then after that, the next recollection I think I have would probably be about the time that um, William O'Brien escaped from Tullamore Jail and Mandeville, I think, was with him at the time. There, I'm not sure it was uh, he with him, but he he he, he was uh, let go from prison after a time he was released, and he died. These are the earliest, I think. Perhaps uh, there was an early one. I'm not quite sure would it be earlier. I was taken by my grandmother. I was, it was on a Sunday. There was a mass. I was taken to an eviction meeting. There was an, uh, not an eviction, but a uh, uh, boycotting meeting of John Gubbins. Uh, Father Sheehy, I think it was, who led the boycott. Indeed, the importance of that same Father Sheehy could not be overstressed in Dev's case because he told me that in early January each year on the Feast of St. Munchen, he would preach a special sermon in Brewery Church, telling them that they came of a kingly race and, of course, describing the place, brewery, brewery, whichever you like. And as Dev would say himself, he enthused him. But while there were enthusiasms, there was also the future to think of. There was work, career, business, as I say, the future. I know that my grandmother had hoped that she might be able to apprentice me to be a carpenter. carpenter. I would have liked that all right. But fundamentally, I think my desire was to become a priest. I'm not sure that I had any very definite ideas about it, however. Oh, he was clever the whole time, and he was always Judas, you know. He was. And then there was a fellow up in Garus. I don't know, he taught me his name now, and he got a good a good pass or a good examination in Charleville. And he thought he might as well do it, or try to do it. So he did it and he got it. But he used to be very tired, you know, and he'd come home from school in the evening. I'm sure he must He have. used to get up in the morning there, now where you saw, at, well, I'd say half past six. I think the first train was up at half past mm. seven or eight. Now I forget, was it half past seven or half past eight, the train? 
and then there was two miles walk into the into the well, school from the, from the station from the station in Charlville into the school and he used to walk to six miles home in the evening it was more than six to seven I suppose from from the school in Charlville to the cottage I went by train in the morning we had to get up very early the train left brewery about 20 to eight o'clock in the morning I was supposed to reach Charlotte station about eight o'clock and then I walked in a mile and a half from the station into the school. I suppose I got into school about roughly before nine o'clock. Mm. And uh, I utilised any time I had in the train to, that was the only time I had really to make up any home lessons, yes. except on the weekend. Were the trains very comfortable that time? Oh, I didn't bother about comfort at that time. Uh, looking back, I know that uh, there were no cushions on the seats. We were travelling third class, but that didn't bother me. What interested me most was our own station in Brewery. It was a favourite playground of mine. Uh, with some of the other boys, we used to go up to Sutton's store when the wagons uh, were emptied of the coal, they were allowed to slide down to the buffers on a, on a slope. And uh, we used to always be anxious to get a jaunt on them. On these occasions, we could uh, cling on to the side of the, of the um, uh, bus or the, the, the truck and uh, stand on the brake when we wanted to bring it to a halt. I was in Charleville two years before that, and then I went to St. Munson's College in Limerick, and directly I left, he came to go there. I see. And he told somebody, he told it to more than one, I, I got the, the exhibitions in Charleville and things like that, and he said, that's what made me go there. Paddy Shea, that was me, got exhibitions and money prizes there and all this kind of thing. and. Uh, only for that, he says, I never might have gone there and I'd be still hunting the cows. Oh, that was one of my principal tasks. Of course, I had uh, very often had to feed the cows too. I remember cutting buckets of turnips for them in the evening and uh, cutting some hay off the be bench with a hay knife and giving them, as we'd say, a wall of hay. And uh, looking after them generally, my uncle, of course, had principal, took principal care of them, but uh, there was only a half acre attached to the college. The cottage. That was before the ten and a half acres was given, uh, which was several years later. In my time, there was only a half an acre. It wasn't sufficient to feed the cows, of course. Uh, we had uh, three or four cows, generally and you had to get some pasture for them. The only available pasture was uh, that on the roadsides. There were good broad uh, edges at uh, that time between the road proper and uh, fences, and very good grass on them too. Of course, uh, there was a good deal of the dust uh, on the roads, but um, uh, there wasn't such an amount of traffic and I, uh, one of my tasks was to 
to the put the take the cows out on the long farm as we call the roadside and uh, look after them. I had to be particularly careful because uh, you could be summoned at that time by the um, police for cattle being uh, straying on the road. If you anybody was with the cattle, you couldn't so easily be summoned because it would be much harder to prove that you weren't taking the cattle from one place to another. My side was better than that of my uncle, and uh, I generally had to look out for the police. If they were on the north side of the house at all, which they generally were, I would be able to see the police coming along at uh, the cross of the road to Drummond, uh, across uh, it's near Brewery, near Brewery Cross. Uh, we used to call it uh, Farrell's Cross, I think. In my time, it was called Handron's Cross afterwards. But I, I remember I could easily uh, distinguish uh, two policemen. They always went out on their beat in pairs. Uh, I could distinguish them easily. If they were going in the evening, they generally took their carbines strapped over their shoulders with the bayonets by their sides and um, they walked uh, in such a way that uh, it was obvious to me anyhow at the distance which would be something about half a mile away or a little more uh, that uh, it was the, uh, that there were policemen and not uh, two, two of the farmers or two of the labourers about. Uh, when I saw them I went for the cows and took them off the road which was their general beat that's around by Howardstown, took them on to the um, Bryan Road or down the Atlaka Road. Uh, I should have given the proper pronunciation, Atlaki Road. Even if the young de Valera was on the Atlaki Road, as he says himself, things of the mind were not neglected. I remember reading Robinson Crusoe, for instance. I remember reading that when I was minding the cows. Uh, then uh, later I used to read books. I remember reading on Hit of Nocfinora. I remember reading in the, in the Life of Napoleon by Abbott. It's a very full life. And he was an admirer of Napoleon's. And, uh, it was written from a sympathetic point of view. It was uh, very, very interesting, but a very big book. However, I think I managed to get through it on the side of the Hill of Nachfenor. The ones I remember best were, first of all, the big book, Abbey Gagan's uh, History of Ireland, uh, which my uncle used to read, from which my uncle used to read aloud time to time. Then uh, from the Uncle Ramus, uh, we had also the Scottish chiefs, and uh, I forget, oh yes, my mother had brought a copy of um, Moore's Melodies, which my uncle used to read. Uh, I can see him in imagination and recollection. I can see him now sitting on the table on a Sunday afternoon, reading aloud the songs uh, from the melodies. And uh, Moore's Melodies, the Scottish Chiefs, uh, Gagan's History, and then, as I say, in the Uncle Ramus Club, we got books like The Bog of Stars, and uh, I don't know, was it from them? We got Ivan O, which was one of the first 
uh, long books that I remember reading when I was going to national school, and uh, the story of Ireland, of course. One evening, and it was about 18, I think, they were footballing in the 40 acres. That was our field, and he came along, and I told him there was a letter in the post for him, and it was a very important letter because he was after getting a big exam. So he, gave, I, he came back to the post office and I gave him the letter. And he was overjoyed, I said. So after that, we became very friendly and he used to come in. He used to be in and out of the post office a good deal, of course, hearing from his mother from America and all that sort of thing. He was taller than the mall and he used to always, he had an awful strap of books, I remember that. And it's up to the time he went to Charleville and when he came back then from Rockville. Because he used to be writing to his mother and hearing from the mother and used to be coming into the post office and we used sometimes have chats. And I remember one evening he passed through the village in what they call a ginetan car, not a pony car now, the uncles. And uh, there was a Miss McAuliffe, a teacher at the post office. And uh, somebody said there was De Valera down his home from school. So... So she said, let me see him, she says. I'm tired of hearing of my nephews talking about this de Valera. He was teaching at the time and also uh, studying at Rockville. Life and death are inseparable, always have been in the Irish countryside, then as now, and the young de Valera would have been well aware of this. The funeral was late in the, later in the day, and I was herding with Tom Martin on the side of what we used to call Martin's Hill. It was a part of uh, Knockmore. When we were tired, we sat down. I had been warned not to sit on wet grass, so I sat in the bus of the herdy, and we were both looking, I suppose, to be northwest. When I saw this funeral winding around uh, from the house, uh, cross over the railway bridge, the bridge across the railway at, at uh, Howardstown. Uh, it was very distinct to me as it uh, hearse and the other uh, cars passed by. I saw it uh, probably later when it was going over the... Uh, no, I saw it a second time when it was going over properly the bridge of, over the mag at, uh, at uh, Howardstown too. However, it set me thinking um, death and life and the shortness of life and the hereafter. And that set me wondering about the world around me, whether it really existed or whether it was as it exists for us in the dream. And to satisfy myself anyhow, I pinched Tom Mortal, who was beside me, uh, the response I got left me no doubt as to the actuality of the world outside me. Uh, I remember that uh, during the whole of my life may have been the reason why on one occasion when I was in, uh, lectured, a lecture by a professor of um, metaphysics that he called me a crude realist. I wasn't, of course, a crude realist, but... However, I had no doubt as to the reality of the world, the external world, and the response I got for the pinch. Recording a boy from Brewery with Eamon de Valera in the 60s had something of a stream of consciousness effect about it. We hopped here, there and everywhere in our 
disparate paths, you could say. One day he asked me a, a leading question after talking about Parnell. He said, do you know teaching McFadden to dance? I didn't, but I suppose as the clichés say, thereby hangs a tale. They had a, a big dance which was called a ball. We had the principal player, the principal instrumentalist at the the ball was a man named Flaherty who played the pipes. He was noted for playing particularly the, the, the fox chase on the pipes. But um, I remember they paid, each person paid a shilling or something like that and they got some refreshments during the night and they had a really good time. There were quite a number of people who were very good dancers. McCarthy, that I mentioned already, was a good dancer. Uh, but we had one famous dancer who used to call it Morris the Dust. Uh, I suppose he, got, he used to dance on the road very often, and no doubt in these days there was dust on the road. So I have no doubt that it was from the amount of dust that was knocked up when he was dancing a hornpipe or something like that. That got the name. Did you ever learn to dance yourself, Othran? I can't say that I learned very well. My grandmother sent me to get uh, some lessons in dancing. There was a dancing master that went from place to place. And when he was in Brewery, my grandmother told me that I should go down and learn and get some lessons in dancing from him. I was taught the, the sidestep, and taught the jig, and we had uh, taught one or two of the set dances also. But uh, I'm afraid I didn't uh, practice dancing at all. Ni rev dev grow a hair dosa. Ah, no, ni ro reeve. Ni do no. Ni huan is to le me keili. Fi round the man down. As you magalergiri dev dollar inka. Out the rinche, cha fali limni, agni rev shigrow a. Legs too long for dancing, perhaps he had, but legs long enough to bestride a horse, if not like a colossus, at least like a jockey on the roads of County Limerick. We were coming home from Charlton and about uh, half a mile or so outside the town, this man came along on a horse and he was obviously had taken too much drink because he was going from side to side. I knew the man well. He came from Tullaboy, and he had a famous horse, March Boy, and everything he was riding, was the horse he was riding. It was a horse that had won the child of a plate. And uh, he, regard, he had great regard for this horse. But he was, I was afraid that he'd tumble off and get killed, mm-hmm. because um, just at our house, men had fallen from a horse and was unconscious for a very long time. So I was very anxious about him, but could do nothing. But then John Gubbins came along with his his uh, steward Armstrong shortly after, and uh, he passed us by. And when he came, caught up on the horseman. He uh, be about a couple of hundred yards ahead of us. He uh, stopped, and the steward came off and pulled the men off the horse. And uh, this man was kicking very hard. He didn't want to be moved from his horse, you see. 
but uh, Stuart was a big, strong man, and he put him, he got up on the car himself and put him sitting beside him on the, on the, um, on the sidecar. But then the horse was in question. What were they going to do with the horse? Mm. It was hard enough to keep this man quiet, but to, to bring the horse was another matter. So Gubbins saw us coming along and he beckoned. And um, Les Gubbins, you know, who was the owner of the two horses that won the, the English Derby, and yeah. Galtimore and R. Patrick. And he beckoned to us to come along. I uh, came up with the other boy and then he said, can any of you fellows, can any of you ride a horse? So I put up my hand if I, I could. Mm -hmm. I had written horse of the farmers around a good deal. And uh, I, but I had never been the racehorse, I yeah. tell you before. Mm -hmm. So I got on the horse and then we were going to trot after the car. He was driving along, trot after the car. But whenever I was near the car at all, the owner of the horse, it was became obstreperous <laughs> and they had difficulty with him, so they begged me to go back. So then I turned, I was delighted, I turned on, I cantered back for half a mile, then cantered back <laughs> half a mile again until I came near them and then cantered back again. So I had a great time. The Golden Vale was and is, always has been, great horse country. It is too indeed great hurling country, and in those times people made their own hurlies. we seem to have got into the money, right? Ah, we ain't the book, Leo. Always couldn't come out. come on, having work peace aimed. I was a casting mounting to. I was work in the road. Work peace aimed. I was getting them via an an boric. 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 road. Couple, couple of years ago, I was going to go to the house. The young boys around Knockmore had certain, of course, less helpful avocations, as indeed we all had, but we used papers, but they were entirely different. There's a certain cane, and it's very porous. Mm -hmm. And you, if you burn it, you can suck the smoke through it. So that was, we called it rattan. I don't know what is the real name for it. Never looked it up. But rattan is what we call it anyhow. A rattan cane. Did you ever hear No, I haven't heard that. A, no, a, rat a rattan cane. 
and uh, a small one, if these, a tin one of these, we would use it. But turf was very common. Smoking Sm- turf? Smoke turf. And then uh, when uh, this chap, Martin, to see, introduced me, I remember to the lucky bag. Did oh. you have a penny lucky bag? And in this lucky bag, you'd get some, but one of the things you'd be hoping to get was a little pipe. Sometimes there was a little pipe, a very miniature yeah. pipe, but you put turf in it. Some people I've heard afterwards, they used when I spoke to other people, they said they used tea. There were sports one time, no, very near where I lived. And we were all at sports, and the prizes were penny packages and these kind of things. So, Div, Eddie, who we were calling him, was in the sports, and he won everyone the prizes. My father was taking a walk down. He used to go down to an old man that was in Stade Park. And he went into best school. That was her best school scholar. David's grandmother. And grandmother. And he was up for a great little boy. Eddie was. And all the penny packages and that kind of prizes were in that. And he won all the races and jumping. Mrs Nora Joyce remembering the virile and happy youth of our boy from Broree. Indeed, he was always that, a boy from Knockmore, a man from Broree, a man from County Limerick, a countryman. And as we sat there in those glorious winter mornings in the mid-60s when he was into his 80s, it was not so difficult to imagine all of that because when he looked back, one saw the whole path of history unfold before one. It was as if one touched the pith of the life of this nation for a short while. Always, as I say, his thoughts came back to Brewery, the long, long thoughts of boyhood, the why and the wherefore, the reasons for, and the reasons, I suppose, why his life turned out as it did. There was one extraordinary factor, of course, in all of these recordings, in that Dev, President De Valera, was blind at the time. So all came from his mind, his memory, and as he looked back, he was looking back with his heart, back again, like I say, and repeated over and over again to these days in Brewery. It was an extraordinary tour de force. It had its very amusing moments, like a day when a microphone bumped and the president said, you must have kicked the table. I never said anything. It had, of course, poignant moments as well, like when we drew towards the end of the series. And he was genuinely sad, I thought, that the recollections were coming to an end. Genuinely sad, but happy that even then, some 83 years onwards, he could still, in his heart, in his mind, in his soul and his spirit, see Brewery. I used to often wish that I had my sight so that I might wander along the brook again from Drumcomer right up to Trinity Well to where it starts in Drummond and see some of the bushes that I thought would still be growing there and look for the look into the water and see what fish and what minnow and so on were there and what birds would be nesting along in the bushes. But, of course, uh, I can't do that. Now, uh, one of my regrets, of course, is that I can't see the whole countryside. I can imagine myself on the top of Nachtaha, for instance, over the village, the way to Rock Hill, looking down north towards Tory Hill and then looking east towards Kilmarrock and west towards... Uh, the, the 
the mountains of West, West Limerick on towards Kerry, and then the Ballyhower Hills to the south, seeing the whole countryside around.